Hello and welcome back to OT and Chill, all things occupational therapy with me, Kwaku. In this episode, I speak to Ben Jones, who was diagnosed with autism at the age of 25. We talk about camouflaging as an autistic man. I really, really enjoy talking to Ben in this episode and I hope you do too. Let's get right into it. So, uh, can you explain what camouflaging is in the autistic community? Right. So, camouflaging is, in some sense, the mimicking of neurotypical behavior. Um, so, it's sort of, yeah, at its core, sort of pretending to be neurotypical, usually in order to sort of like fit in or to yeah not or at least to not stand out among uh, neurotypical people and to sort of yeah blend in better than you sort of would behaving naturally or behaving as i would usually do and it's it's a it's an active effort that not necessarily isn't necessarily i think particularly for me at this stage isn't necessarily always deliberate like it's gotten to a point where there are certain things that I will do um, just kind of automatically because I've trained myself to do them for two and a half decades. But it will always be an active thing. It's always a sort of, it's a it's an active effort. It's a sort of drain on energy. And yeah, it's, it's something that I'm constantly doing rather than it's not something that is sort of passive. But it's often mimicking those sort of passive behaviors that kind of neurotypical people will do, or holistic people, sorry, will do without sort of effort or without thinking. It's just like a learned thing. So when you when you're in like different environments, you sort of watch what other people are doing, and you sort of try to take that on board for the next similar situation that you're in. Is that is that yeah, on the right lines? To a degree, uh, it's yeah, it's definitely learned in terms of I think in terms of how it's learned be a variety of different ways and like like mimicking other people and sort of copying sort of what other people the way other people sort of like do and say is definitely sort of a part of that and particularly sort of when I was very young and sort of just starting out I I don't know a better way to say that (laughs) but um yeah that's sort of how I did I know during my uh kind of early teens I also I read a bunch of books on um kind of body language and facial cues and things like that and essentially sort of like researched like it's sort of I think the books are intended for sort of people to um who are looking to kind of like be be sort of like master intuitors and sort of like you know like uh if that sort of uh detective show sort of like catch someone out in a lie because they make a subtle movement oh, okay. okay or like be an expert at poker I think those were that's what the books were intended for I was using them to sort of get to a point where like I could process facial expressions and vocal tone and things like that because I didn't really do it naturally. I naturally just sort of like took everything at face value and ignored what people's faces were doing. Mm. I think I was very much told as like a child, someone who would talk at people more than talk to them necessarily. Because so I wouldn't really, I would sort of, I would have things that I wanted to say and I would say them and I wouldn't really necessarily pick up on whether or not the person I was speaking to was engaged as engaged in the conversation as I was so you just wanted Um, to get your point over 
to them as quickly as possible type of I mean, type kind of, of I think I to some degree and and it's difficult to remember this was one of in single digits but I, I don't think I I think because in some ways like I didn't I, mean, I wasn't fussy about people I listened to and so I just sort of assumed that other people okay would listen and that's not necessarily the case but it's it's so it's a it's a mix of things and some bits are yeah more deliberate than others going out of the way to research things or to sort of like time spent sort of like reflecting on things there's also a whole lot of uh or for me at least a lot of sort of scripting where okay. it's sort of almost obsessively sort of play and rehearse conversations in my head so i'm sort of constantly going over sort of different like scenarios yeah scenarios but also like sort of designing i don't that this may be a reference that doesn't land with people, but uh, in terms of getting a lot in uh, kind of video games, which have like dialogue trees, where it's sort of like there's a start point for a conversation, and then depending on you sort of choose one of two options, and it goes one of two ways, and then you choose another okay. option. Okay. Sort of, and basically designing that in my head for real conversations, so it's sort of so I felt prepared for like which direction a conversation would go. Yeah. Um, that does sound like a lot of work because you be doing and it's quite it can would it be fair to say that it's quite draining to be doing that or not really did you find that that's something that you've always done so it was it became like a norm to you i mean it became a norm but yes it was draining uh, <laughs> like yeah no it was it was definitely draining it was um like nearly constantly but it was sort of something i felt like i needed to do to sort of to sort of come across as normal Mm. Normal, yeah. Um, so yeah, I um, so sort of do that. I would yeah, kind of practice. Um, as I said, like like reading facial expressions, researching how that worked. Practice doing facial expressions, kind of in the mirror when I was younger, because I was told that I I wasn't expressive. Um, and so I sort of practiced doing those. And sort of when I was talking to people, keep in mind. Like what face, what my face was doing, what my voice was doing, how to like where where I was looking, and so like all of these things and keep them consciously in mind while yeah. having a conversation, while also remembering the sort of like the fifty different sort of permutations of the conversation that I'd already rehearsed oh. um, to sort of try and find my way through it, uh, and also paying attention to what their face and voice were doing. It's a yeah. lot. It's really a lot to. It's, it's, it's obviously that's something that I've never had to think about um, personally. But mm. I can just imagine having to be aware, constantly aware of what is going on in your interaction is quite difficult. And that, can that is would it be fair to say that some people then then tend actually not to engage in those conversations because they don't they find it too too difficult. Um, no, I know you're just speaking for yourself. Yeah. Um, I uh, think. Yeah, like, well, there were definitely, like, I would, like, I've, I've never been a super social person, but uh, I know that, like, particularly, and particularly, like, because as I got older and as I sort of learned more things, these kind of mechanisms become more complex. And I definitely, like, as I got older, particularly before I was diagnosed, kind of became sort of, like, I, I guess, or sort of, like, had less and less sort of social energy because every social encounter required so much more from me and so i think yeah like there are definitely conversations particularly like conversations that i i wasn't super interested in having i would mm. become like very yeah sort of determined to avoid them um and particularly like 
like conversations at work in particular because I I'm, I sort of if I'm at work I have like a thing that I need to do and I just want to do that and I'm not necessarily I don't like I don't want to have sort of like small talk with my coworkers because that's a bunch of energy that I really need to save for like what I'm doing and so yeah like at work uh, and in the entire like four and a bit years that I was working in one restaurant I like never went out socially with my coworkers because doing so would just be sort of like too much I, I mean I was already working like 60 hours a week but yeah sort of going and like socializing outside of work as well would have just been sort of too much of a strain on myself Mm-hmm. Um, that's so that is that is uh, like I said I found I find it fascinating how um, it, it's con- it's a constant thing on like your mind to have uh, to either conserve your energy <laughs> for for mm-hmm. conversations that you want to or be active in the conversation or interaction that so that you you don't seem like you're too offish with the person or the person actually pays attention to you basically mm. to, to get your point across so i was wondering what what some of the short and long-term effects this had on your your own mental health or mental well-being having to camouflage or actively camouflage anyway as i said around sort of like the way that over over years of sort of knowing that i was different but not understanding why um and how that yeah led to this sort of like i guess sort of like self this uh, this kind of ingrained belief that I was sort of broken or sort of different or wrong kind of internally with no real understanding why I mean for context of that like there was I don't know how different things are now probably not much but there was no real education around autism or really any disability within my schooling and I think I knew one other autistic person at my secondary school, but he was very different to me because it, that's that's how people are. But because I had no real concept of autism, I was sort of like, well, he's autistic and he's different to me. So that's probably not it because that's that's all my understanding. But because of that, like I, um, yeah, because of, the sort of constant sort of processing things around things, constant sort of fear of being kind of discovered as as how different I was. Um, and because of this sort of self-image of myself, I sort of developed a lot of anxiety from a very young age. Definitely developed depression kind of very slowly, kind of as like a slow build throughout my teens and sort of, and these things sort of, kind of built and compounded on themselves over over years, which kind of, which led to a sort of a crisis point. Yeah, my mid-twenties, which ended with when I was the clinical psychologist, I was referred to the home treatment team at a local hospital, and it was the clinical psychologist attached to that that referred me for an autism assessment um, after I'd sort of talked things through with her. But that sort of... It was, it was, that in itself was somewhat difficult, or particularly when I went to um, like the GP to mm. sort of talk about mental health, it was particularly difficult because it seemed, I think, and in general, when they look at 
depression and other things from a um, from their perspective. They're often looking for like a triggering incident. Oh, yeah, um, yes. They're looking for sort of like the thing that sort of either sort of caused it or just pushed you sort of over an edge. Mm. And I didn't have one. It's sort of it, it because this has just been the same thing building for years and years. And so they like I know the first the first appointment with the GP I had, he did not seem very convinced, and sort of gave me like a slight referral, but it was one where like I think I had like a I had like one sort of a, like a taster session of group therapy, which was which was really bad because like particularly if like you're in a place where there's sort of like let's discuss mental health and you're like the only autistic person in a group of neurotypical people talking about how neurotypical people experiencing depression and be like oh well this is i'm more isolated than ever because this is you're specifically telling me these are the people that understand you and they don't hmm. so going through that and then being on a waiting list and then i like things deteriorated um and i saw a different gp uh and she referred me to the home treatment team and things happen. There was a lot in that period of time and I, did, I don't have super clear explanations for all of it but that sort of I mean there's there's plenty of other groups I sort of empathize with sort of constantly having to hide who you are and constantly having to sort of pretend to be someone else and so sort of like that is just a, an in, intensely um, kind, of, kind of degrading and sort of like difficult experience you're sort of constantly ashamed of who you are constantly feeling like constantly afraid of being yeah sort of discovered for being different and constantly exhausted because of how much effort hiding takes yeah. um and so yeah it's sort of particularly because by the time this all when it all came to a head i was yeah i was working as a chef i was working sort of 60 to 70 hours a week hiding all the time, not sleeping properly, partly because sometimes my shifts didn't leave me that much time for sleep. And even when they did, like so sort of like riddled by anxiety at that point that I couldn't sleep anyway. I mean, even I know I, even when I had kind of weeks of holiday, I would come back from my holiday more tired than I had left because yeah. I had spent the entire week worrying about everything and also, well, this is like a separate thing, but it, it was the like also because of the way sort of like the schooling system taught me to tie my self worth to my productivity. Mm. Um, so when I was on holiday and not doing things, I felt like shit. Uh, yeah. But that's that's like a separate that's a separate issue. No, um, it's no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue that as occupational therapists we try to be aware of. Because, you know, people find meaning in many different things. People find meaning in their work. When to work, people might attach meaning to the work. But actually, if, if, if that meaning is, or working in too much is having an impact on your, your own self-esteem and all those yeah. things, or making I you think, really tired, then... Yeah, I think really we're seeing, um, thinking recently about sort of, I don't know, like the sort of, like the difference between like self-esteem and self-worth, mm. sort of like, Self-esteem being sort of like, I, or at least for me and how I process things, self-esteem being sort of like how how I feel about myself 
sort of in the company of others mm. versus self-worth being sort of like how I feel about myself when I'm alone. Mm. And it's sort of like you know, self-esteem being more linked to sort of like your confidence and how you sort of, how you do or don't compare yourself to other people. Whereas self-worth just being sort of like what you believe about yourself in isolation of everything else. And I think very much like, and I know like it's particularly bad as my school because well, the psychologist attached to the home treatment team mentioned that like the majority of people she saw my age, because she works like with everyone in the area, went to either my school or the school that it was partnered with. Like there were just two, I don't, I feel like I probably shouldn't name them. No. Dragging through the dirt. <laughs> um, but they were very, very like academically focused schools that didn't really care what that did to the emotional health of and I think that will that will be worse in some places than others. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily great for someone who was already struggling with mental health things at the time. Yeah. Uh, that's just it, it, it's so interesting. So it's, uh, again, like I said, I've, I've learned a lot, and I really appreciate you taking your time to um, share this and share your experiences. And I really hope that people who are listening um, do take this on board because the value of people's lived experiences it's just it's so important when we are as professionals quote-unquote professionals are mm-hmm. working with people we really have to take time and listen to them and listen to what makes them uh, have that self-worth like you mentioned before or have that self-esteem um, in order to work best um, with them uh, but for you in general with the whole topic we're talking about camouflage and have you found it to be a, a useful thing to do, okay. I know. I, I know you've talked a lot about it already, but just just in general, in the oh, way. No, no, no. It's it's more. This is this is a really loaded question. So it's okay. So it's, in terms of like painting a picture, and of course, sense like has has being able to camouflage helped me in certain scenarios. Yes, because ultimately, this sort of like the world as a whole is something that is very much sort of like geared towards neurotypical people and geared towards mm. allowing neurotypical people to succeed. Mm. And so being able to pretend to be neurotypical in that environment can be helpful because that's the way the environment is. Like I don't want to give the impression that like autistic people should learn how to camouflage because that's not really kind of I don't feel like that's that's the best solution here. No, and, that, and that's absolutely right. And that's absolutely, you're absolutely right. It's not, it's not the yeah. best solution. Sometimes we, uh, like occupational therapists, um, we always try to adapt the peop- um, environment to suit uh, people as much as possible. And I know it's difficult, like you mentioned before, the world is designed to, to suit um, the neurotypical person or people. So it's very difficult to adapt the whole environment, but the little bits that you can do in your own like social spaces or physical spaces as much as possible to assist yeah. someone to succeed um, is, is, is possible. But I suppose for you, I, well, what I was thinking in my head was that maybe you mentioned it actually, is it in certain scenarios have you used it to you as much to your advantage as possible so that you can succeed in areas that you didn't first imagine that you would succeed or uh, engage with people that you didn't imagine that you would engage with? To some degree, maybe. Um... I don't know. Like, well, it's difficult to look at it from that perspective because as of late, I wasn't diagnosed until I was uh, in my mid-twenties. So a lot of stuff had already happened. 
and there's definitely a degree to which like because up until that point it was i didn't i i couldn't sort of like consciously process it as camouflaging because i didn't know i didn't really have an awareness of like why i was different or sort of why i was experiencing and sort of processing things differently to other people um yeah, i've got you stuck on that I question know. haven't i <laughs> yeah I, I, no i think i think you've answered it i think you've answered uh, that question like in, in certain scenarios you've you found it but i can imagine it initially like when you first meet new people it, I, I can only imagine that i'm not being your position i can imagine it's, it's, it's useful until maybe you feel more relaxed or more comfortable around people than to let to sort of just be who you are which I, yeah yeah which it's, is i think it's useful in conversations that i've had um it's useful in the same way uh sort of like like lip reading can be useful for the deaf community. Yes. It sort of does it. Can it be helpful to understand people by lip reading? Yeah. Would it be better if sort of BSL was taught widely throughout the country? Of course it would. It's sort of that's this like it is useful with society the way it is. If society were adapt, it wouldn't need to be. Yes. It's sort of. So yeah, I think yeah. that's sort of it's, it's both sides of the coin, isn't it? It's one of those holding both sides of it. Is, yeah. Society needs to change to adapt for everybody, but we all know that it's really difficult to make that change uh, across the uh, across the board. So, in terms of uh, camouflage in your experience, have you found that it's changed with different um, developmental stages? Uh, like how, as you've grown up and obviously because you were diagnosed quite late uh, in in your life, like mm-hmm. in mid twenties, can you see how it's changed since you were a teenager due to the position that you're in now yes <laughs> yeah okay. definitely i think yes the sort of mechanisms of camouflaging will become sort of much more complicated kind of difficult to maintain but much more sophisticated and sort of the way that i approach it now would be very different to sort of the way i approached it as a sort of as a three-year-old so as sort of because yeah fooling other three-year-olds into thinking that you're similar to them or fooling other adults who are looking at you as a three-year-old isn't that difficult i mean comparatively but yeah once sort of things become once you get older and sort of people become better at reading social cues once the sort of like the idea of like adults looking at you and just like oh they're just a kid that's why they act that way once that wears off, you have to sort of conform to a whole different set of expectations. Okay, okay. And particularly in, in environments, environments get more sort of uh, strenuous and complex. And like jumping from, like particularly like large transitions, like jumping from primary school into secondary school, or jumping from secondary school into university or university into work, was would sort of like required kind of large changes to the way that I sort of to the way that I camouflaged and the way that I um, kind of presented myself and also kind of the way that I, I guess, like thought around camouflage. Like we sort of talked a little on kind of the way that I would con- sort of conserve energy in certain groups and so, so that I sort of had energy to sort of socialize with people that I, to be blunt, preferred spending time with. And doing that sort of required me to cultivate entirely different sort of personas and reputations among different groups Mm. so like the way that people at work or like the person that sort of people at work knew was very different to the person that the sort of people in my sort of 
friend groups would have known and sort of they would have um, almost I feel like well there's also like a careful like an awareness of that and a careful um, sort of ensuring that those two groups don't interact because that would create a bunch more complications but if they did I imagine they could probably sort of like have a conversation about me and never realize they were talking about the same person it's sort of it's that sort of yeah like just being very sort of like closed off deadpan and sort of kind of antisocial in one's context and being very sort of like open and friendly and yeah kind of like more kind of accepting of like longer conversation things than another and having yeah like yet another sort of thing mm. depending on like which group i was spending time with and yeah that's of, what, that's what i was thinking earlier when i asked the question like is it uh, is it it's quite draining or is, this, is it quite hard work and that leads me on to another question maybe you've answered it before but what is it like having to for maybe yourself or other autistic people that you know having to engage in camouflage and all the time to to try fitting in environments which which they shouldn't be trying to do like mm-hmm. environments you try hopefully as much as possible uh, fit the person um, what, what is it like is it is it really tough on on, on people's mental health in yes. general or have you spoken to other um, people about it to some degree and yeah i think like in my own experience yeah so for one thing as it like i've been kind of consciously camouflaging since i was three years old because it's like one of my earliest memories is the beginning of it or the sort of i mean on a short-term thing it means sort of my mind was sort of constantly working on um yeah, in terms of like rehearsing conversations, practicing things, or analyzing old conversations that I've had for sort of like things I might have missed or um, things that I can sort of like pick up and learn from that. And like that, I mean, develops into, yeah, sort of anxiety very quickly. And I, because I know I've had, I haven't slept properly since I was about five because I would just lie awake for hours and hours sort of playing conversations in my head, um, trying to sort of either planning new ones, processing old ones, or sort of uh, just rehearsing these various things to try and feel ready for, yeah, conversations when they happen during the day. From a long-term perspective, it is more complicated. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about the thing when I was three. Um, it's, it's a good start. So, so essentially, and I might, it's either my first memory or my second memory. I can't remember mm-hmm. which of these happened in which order. But um, basically, the the memory I have is I was at like a like a play group, like a they get, I can't remember what they're called now. A nursery. Uh, yeah, that sort of thing. And I'm assuming that I had upset someone. Uh, I don't remember how or or what happened, but I remember being told by the um, carer, uh, person in charge. I remember being told that I needed to treat other people how I wanted to be treated. And I remember thinking, well, that's wrong because I am treating people how I want to be treated and they don't like it. So like some things, and like very quickly that becomes sort of, uh, well, like if I want to be treated a certain way and other people want to be treated a different way, that means that I must be different. And if I'm being told that the way I want to be treated is sort of is the problem then the way i want to be treated and the way i am must be wrong mm. and so it very quickly and like very quickly throughout my childhood and teenage years developed into this sort of yeah this sort of ingrained idea in my head that 
the way I was, because the way I was thinking and the way I was feeling and the way I was sort of processing things around me was noticeably different from everyone else. And I didn't know why, I didn't really have context for it. That meant that the way I sort of was as a person must be wrong. And there must be something sort of fundamentally broken about that. Mm. And because I sort of, there was sort of, that sort of thing gets um, sort of, or the mentality gets encouraged very easily because you get sort of, particularly when you start camouflaging from a very young age, sort of when you are camouflaging, when you are sort of mimicking these neurotypical behaviors and sort of pretending to be this type of person, you get praised for that. You're sort of like, oh, you're like well behaved, you're, you're doing great. And when you sort of like more behave, when I behaved more naturally, when I sort of behaved more as I was sort of, yeah, sort of um, instinctively inclined to do, I would get sort of criticized for that or sort of like, yeah, it'd be sort of, that would be, I would be told that that's sort of like the problem or sort of thing. So, so like, like you don't that, feel like accepted. Like no, accepted and, so, and, that, and that sort of, yeah, that kind of, kind of ingrains that mentality over over years and to the point where like yeah like by by like my late remember like my late teens and into my 20s i sort of the way that i was was this sort of like source of shame for me essentially because all my life it had been sort of not necessarily directly told because no one knew what was happening because i was almost at, at this point i was sort of really sort of always camouflaging to some degree because I didn't feel like I had any other choice. And so no one sort of necessarily knew what was going on, but I felt like I constantly had to hide sort of who I was and mm. sort of how I was because it was different and therefore seemed to be a problem to everyone else. Um, yeah, no, it's, a, it's just... Uh... Thanks for sharing that. It's it's it's, it's really it must be really really difficult, like growing up, especially and having to trying to do all the things um, that you want to do, but having all constantly having to think about all these things and not being shamed for just being yourself. Um, because as you said, that mentality, can, especially uh, that teenage brain, that can quickly mm -hmm. make you feel quite low about yourself, and that's not that's not really yeah. a good thing, is it? Um, I think you touched on it previously about maybe not um choosing not to go out with your uh, work colleagues or uh, not having certain conversations with people or not do, choosing not to do things but one of the things I wanted to ask you was um how has it impacted on you on your everyday life I don't know if you've got anything to expand on that I seen when you want to when you know you want to do a, a particular thing that you like but you know that people are around might not be accepting of it or might be inclined to shame you or not you know just mm -hmm. make you feel bad about yourself or not engage with you because they, they see certain things that you might be doing or saying yeah i think it definitely like well as someone because so, it's it, like pre and post diagnosis it's sort of i guess it affects me very differently definitely like post diagnosis i think i have a much like an awareness of like how much energy things will take but also before before i was diagnosed because i didn't know what was going on i didn't feel like i had uh, an excuse to get out of things like i knew there was something like i knew that i found sort of social things very draining but i i struggled to sort of like turn down things even if i knew they were going to be sort of a serious problem 
because it was kind of difficult for me to say like I like I didn't feel like I had a reason for it mm. because I did I didn't understand the reason. So like these days it is more of a sort of like I will like be very careful about the sort of things that I like accept or like agree to get into and be a lot more sort of lenient with myself but also like put in sort of certain coping mechanisms as well. So for instance I I went to a little while back a friend's wedding and Basically, it was a wedding, like, I'd known him for a long time, but I didn't know really anyone else who was going to be there. And I sort of, I think this must have been, it was definitely post-referral. I think it was before the official diagnosis, but it was when I knew what was, or had an idea what was going on. Hmm. And for the, it, for the sort of like, in the lead up to the wedding, I sort of asked him specifically if I could have plus one, uh, just like a friend to bring along with me just to sort of like essentially she acted as like something somewhat like a social buffer if yeah. like yeah so there wasn't like any conversation wasn't like super directed at me and also just sort of like someone who's because um with the sort of degree of camouflaging required and also how easy i find it to read different people different people will be like different amounts of tiring to be around um, yeah, I can understand so, that. I can understand yeah, that. That's sort of like some people I would I would find it much easier to spend time with than others. And yeah, she was someone that I sort of got on with well and sort of yeah found sort of easy to be around yeah. and was also like aware of everything at that point or everything I was. And so sort of went with her and also said ahead of time to him that like probably won't stay for the entire thing will probably sort of leave at some point and secured like made sure i definitely had like a way to leave at any given point mm. so i didn't have sort of so essentially i had sort of someone around who i felt safe with to sort of kind of get me out and the sort of like the ahead sort of notification that like i might just leave at some point and it's not like a personal thing and i'm not upset with the wedding i'm just tired yeah because weddings particularly like Weddings as a thing are like super intimidating yes. because <laughs> they're like massive social groups and very like high energy, high emotion yeah. things. Um, yeah. And I don't. I and don't especially you said you, uh, if you don't really know, if you don't know many people there, then yeah. every, everyone you knew is a, is a new interaction, and it's, uh, it's I can imagine how tiring it can be. Yeah. So in terms of like larger, like that's a. I, yeah, like a, a semi-unique example, but that's the sort of like coping mechanisms that I would sort of structure around things to accommodate for the fact that yeah, particularly conversation you know, like camouflaging can be very draining and it can be sort of, yeah, something that is very difficult to sustain for long periods of time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't want to kind of yeah, burn myself out. That. Right. That's a that's a that's yeah. a fair strategy to take, and I suppose it's about it's about recognizing what your what you need yourself, what your mind needs, what your body needs, um, and how much you can be around people who might be taking away your energy. Then you don't have the energy to just be yourself, and when you're chilled out at home or wherever, wherever your other social group that you feel more comfortable with, you want to have energy to spending with them rather than other people taking away that energy so no honestly it's been fascinating i really i really appreciate you uh joining me today and telling telling me about all this and i i, I, I it's something that I, I had an idea of really but i didn't know how how maybe deep it went and how it has an impact on 
on, on autistic people. So thank you so much for sharing. Of course. Thank you. Thank you again, Ben. I really, really enjoyed it, like I said at the beginning. And I hope you did enjoy it too. Until next time, guys, stay safe.